Good morning. We've got to try that one more time. <laughs> Normally do that during the announcements time, but hey, uh, so good morning, everyone. Thank you. Uh, so we are um, currently working through a series uh, through the book of John called That You May Believe, The Signs of Christ in the Gospel of John. So, so far we've focused on four signs. Uh, one was Jesus turning water to wine. That was John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Two was Jesus cleansing the temple. That was John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Three was Jesus healing the official's son, and that was John 4, verses 43 to 54. And then four last week uh, was Jesus healing the lame man, and that was John 5, verses 1 to 18. Now, these signs, they each display the glory of Jesus in unique ways. So it's fitting to focus on them one by one, one at a time, like we're doing. But keep in mind that John has also recorded these signs for a singular purpose. And he tells us what that is in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs that Jesus performs are amazing but they're not meant to be ends in and of themselves. So the wine, the water to wine, it's about more than just wine. Uh, it's in our reading today, in the passage that we're going to study, it's about more than just physical bread. So they're not meant to be ends in and of themselves. John's readers, and you and me, we're meant to see, uh, we're meant to see the signs but we're meant to look beyond themselves to what they say about Jesus. We're meant to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and have life in his name. And Lord willing, that's what we're going to do this morning. So today, we've come to the fifth sign in John's gospel, the feeding of the multitude, which Caroline read for us from John chapter 6. Now, we're going to work through the text in three parts. The, the, in the first part, we're going to consider the sign itself. So those are the verses that Caroline read, verses 1 to 15. But then second, we'll explore the significance of the sign, and for that we'll look to verses 16 to 59. And then third, we'll consider the responses to Christ in the text, and for that we'll look at verses 60 to 71. Now, you might hear that and be getting a little nervous. Those are a lot of verses, 71. Well. We're not going to cover them all, and given the amount of text, uh, we're not going to be exploring every verse in detail. Instead, uh, my aim for this morning, what I hope to do, is to work through the passage at a high level and spend most of our time focusing broadly on the significance of this sign Jesus performs and our response to it. Um, this sign is about the bread of life, and I will go ahead and tell you up front I want to do my best um, to help us see Jesus this morning and come away worshiping him. But you need to know that the best that I've got is not good enough. Jesus is better than what I'm going to be able to say. Um, so let's get that out of the way up front and look with anticipation 
at what the Lord has to say to us in this chapter. So let's look at our first point, the sign. This is verses 1 to 15 of John chapter 6. So in these verses, Jesus is on the other side. It's probably the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And John tells us in verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. Jesus goes up on a mountain, which that could refer to an area that's known as the Golan Heights on the east side of the sea, and he sits down with his disciples. And when he sees a large crowd coming toward him, he asks Philip, one of the 12 disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? According to verse six, he wasn't looking to Philip for answers, but he asked Philip that to test him. Well, Philip fails. He fails that test. He says in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread, which that would have been about eight months' wages for a laborer at that time. So this is a lot, 200 denarii. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he chimes in in verse 9. He says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Philip and Andrew both fail to see that Jesus is capable of providing for this crowd, d- d- despite the fact that the crowd is really large. And it is really large. John tells us in verse 10 that the men sat down about 5,000 in number. So this is the feeding of the 5,000, but when we hear 5,000 here, that's the men who sat down. If you include women and children in that, there could have been somewhere in the ballpark of 15,000 people here. It's a lot of people. And all that Jesus has to work with are five barley loaves and two fish, which the text is pointing out, is enough for the one boy's lunch. There's not a lot of food, and there, is, there are a ton of people here. So what does Jesus do? Verses 11 to 13. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So with five barley loaves and two fish, Jesus miraculously feeds this enormous crowd. They eat as much as they want. They eat their fill and there are even leftovers. Verses 14 to 15 tell us how the crowd responds. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So what's going on there? Prophet, what do they mean by that? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses, the Lord's prophet, he says to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verses 18 and 19 of that same chapter, the Lord tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
So ultimately, these verses look ahead to Jesus. He is the greater Moses. He is the prophet. And the people, they, they, they seem at least to some degree to understand that. But verse 15 of John 6 tells us that something is wrong. It gives us a clue that something's wrong in their thinking. John says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's think about what's going on there. So John says in verse 4 of this chapter that the Passover was at hand. The Passover is a time of year when the Israelites looked back and celebrated that God, with Moses as his prophet, delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. So in the book of Exodus, after Pharaoh, king of Egypt, refuses time and again to let the Israelites go, he finally relents after God kills all the firstborn in the land of Egypt with the final devastating plague. God spares the Israelites there from the effect of that plague because they obey him and they put the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the doors of their homes. When God sees that blood, he passes over the Israelites, their homes, and the plague doesn't touch them. Passover. Now, at the time of John 6, uh, it's important to note that God's people, they're not under Egyptian rule, but they are under Roman rule. And it's the time of Passover. And you have a prophet like Moses who has appeared on the scene. This man has performed great signs and now he has miraculously fed thousands of people with a boy's lunch. And that feeding in and of itself, that could have reminded the people of how God in the book of Exodus, again with Moses as his prophet, feeds the Israelites with manna from heaven in the wilderness after he delivers them out of Egypt. So after seeing this new prophet, the people want to take him by force to make him king. D.A. Carson helps us connect the dots. He says, if the first prophet Moses had led the people out of slavery to Egypt, surely the second would help them escape servitude to Rome. The people see the signs, they see the healings, and they have participated in the feast, but they have failed to look past the signs and see what those signs signify. Yes, they have correctly identified Jesus as the prophet, but they betray their misunderstanding when they seek to take him by force to make him king, possibly thinking that he's going to deliver them from their Roman oppressors. They miss that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to deliver his people not from Rome, but from their sin and to give them eternal life. Their thinking is actually too small. They want their material, physical, and even political needs met. But they miss that Jesus came to satisfy their deepest needs. He came to meet their deepest longings, salvation from their sin, reconciliation to God, peace with God, eternal life through faith in Him. So they've missed it. And we can, and, and, and we do, even as Christians, make this mistake too at times, I think. Here are a couple of ways that I think that we can do that. First, 
we can look to things other than Jesus to satisfy us. We can look to food, health, money, status, sex, technology, spouses, kids, friends, and on and on it goes. Now, those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. It's not wrong to have a spouse and love a spouse. It's not wrong to have children and love children. It's not wrong to enjoy food and and desire health. They're not wrong in and of themselves. But when we make gods out of them, when they take a place in our heart that only God should occupy, we've gone astray. As sinners by nature and by choice, this is the natural inclination of our hearts. They are idol factories, as John Calvin once said. This is why we need Jesus. It's why we need the bread of life. Jesus will identify himself here in a minute in our, in our text. It's why that as Christians, we continually need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and make us more and more like Jesus. We need God to continually tear down the idols in our hearts and get our eyes on Jesus. We need that. We need God to do that in us. And second, another way that I think we can uh, fall into a similar error is we can be prone to see and use God as a tool to meet our physical needs, our material needs, and even at times our political needs. And that goes for conservatives and progressive, uh, progressives alike. We can all do that. Now, let's be clear. Physical and material needs and our politics are important. God cares about them, and so should we. But God is not a tool to be manipulated for our own advantage. We should want him for him, not for what he can do for us. And we should see that our greatest, our most foundational need is for Jesus. It's for Christ, and it is for Christ-likeness. It's for eternal life through faith in Jesus. And as Christians, it's for the Spirit's empowerment so that we live holy lives, so that we love God and neighbor, so that we, whether we're facing abundance or famine, whether we're facing life or death, can say with Paul in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We need God to do that in us. So Jesus fed the multitude through this miraculous sign. But the point went beyond supernaturally providing a meal. It was about more than, than, than just bread, as amazing and wonderful as the miracle was. So let's continue exploring the sign's significance and move on to point two. So here we'll consider verses 16 to 59. So in verses 16 to 21, Jesus' disciples get in a boat and they go to cross the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. But Jesus isn't with them. Jesus stays behind. Now they're in the water, and a strong wind blows. The sea becomes rough, and Jesus miraculously walks on the water, and he joins them in the boat. And when he does, the boat, John says, is immediately at the land to which they were going. There may be two miracles there. Jesus walking on water, and when Jesus gets in the boat, somehow it's right to where they wanted to go. But at any rate, the next day, the crowds on the other side of the sea, they notice that Jesus and his disciples aren't there. 
So the next day, the crowds are still where they were, where the feeding took place, and Jesus and the disciples are gone. Now, they recall that there was only one boat, and that only Jesus' disciples were on that boat when it left. So the natural question is, well, where, where's Jesus? The disciples got in that boat, but we didn't see Jesus. So those people, they too, they go to Capernaum, and when they find Jesus, they ask him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, in verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Again, the point is they're missing the significance of the signs. They're following Jesus because he miraculously fed them. They want him for the wrong reasons. And Jesus corrects them in verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So like a seal that you might find on a letter or a document validating its authority, God has so authenticated Jesus. And because that's true, Jesus is able to give the food that endures to eternal life. And he tells the people to work for that food. But they misunderstand and they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Remember, that's the point of the signs. John records them not as ends in and of themselves, but so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The point isn't simply about feeding the multitude. It's what the feeding of the multitude says about Jesus's identity and purpose, which we'll unpack more as we work through the chapter. But these folks miss that. One commentator or commentary by St. Helen's Bishop's Gate sums up their thinking. They have seen something, but not everything. One commentator puts it this way. Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. They are looking for a rescue and a rescuer, but Jesus' analysis of them is that they are looking for a different type of rescue to the one he has come to bring. Their agenda is entirely materialistic, so they want a political king who will meet their materialistic needs through their religious works. And they ask Jesus in verses 30 and 31, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What word do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, they've just witnessed Jesus miraculously feed upwards of 15,000 people with one boy's meal. But they ask him here for a sign. They want more. They, they look back to the Exodus when God, with Moses as his prophet, gave their fathers bread from heaven, and they ask Jesus to so validate himself. Well, Jesus tells them in verses 32 and 33, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus was speaking of himself as the bread of God, but they again seem to misunderstand, and they ask Jesus in verse 34 to give them that bread always. Like Nicodemus and John 3, who doesn't understand what Jesus means by being born again. Like the Samaritan woman in John 4, 
who doesn't understand what Jesus means by living water, the people here don't understand what Jesus means by the bread of God that comes down from heaven. Jesus speaks metaphorically, but clearly in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If there's a single verse that sums up the point of the sign of verses 1 to 15, this could be the one. The one who fed the multitude with the bread and fish is himself the bread of life. You can try to find satisfaction and meaning and meaning outside of Christ, but your hunger will only be met. Your thirst will only be quenched by coming to Jesus, by believing in him. He's the only one that can do that for you. And that promise is extended to everyone. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That opportunity, that invitation is open to everyone, but not everyone will come, as is, as is evidenced by the people in this chapter. As Jesus says in verses 36, and then the first part of verse 37, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All, the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus makes a similar point in verses 41 to 44. There, the, the Jews grumble because Jesus said he's the bread who came down from heaven. They know, so they think who Jesus' parents were. So they don't understand, like, how can Jesus say something like that? Like, we know who Jesus' mom and dad are. How, how can he be the bread who came down from heaven? Jesus tells them in verses 43 to 44, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what's that mean? Well, on our own, we are, every single one of us, spiritually dead. We are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to come to God. We need miraculous intervention. We need God to draw us in and make us alive. We need God to give us faith to embrace Jesus. Now, that doesn't negate the invitation. The invitation is whoever comes. But once you have come, you can look back and see that it was the Father's drawing that brought you in. Open invitation. So if you are trusting Jesus, that should produce in you, that should produce in me, humility and thankfulness. Humility because you're saved, you have peace with God, you've come to Jesus as the bread of life, not because of your own doing, but solely because God, by his grace, drew you in. And thankfulness because God drew you in. He didn't leave you in your sin, but he gave you faith to turn from your sins and embrace Jesus. What a gift. That is amazing grace. And the good news here keeps on coming. Verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
If you have come to Jesus, if God has drawn you in, Jesus will never, ever cast you out. You will be kept safe in Christ and faithful till the very end, till you are raised up at his return and you see him face to face. That is God. It's God's will that that happens. And, and so that means that Jesus will do it. That's a guarantee. That will not fail. He won't fail you. God's grace, God draws you in and he gives you Jesus. You, by his grace, through faith, come. And Jesus won't lose you, but he'll raise you up in the last day. What a great God we have. What great hope we have in Jesus. He's the bread of life. He meets all of our needs. He keeps us faithful to the end. He is the bread of life, and he's even greater than that manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness in the Exodus. That's where the text uh, goes as we continue. That bread from heaven, it sustained the people who ate it at the time. But Jesus is, is better. As he says in verse 49, those who ate that bread back in the Exodus, those who ate the manna from heaven, what happened to them? They died. But in, verses, in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, which is another way of saying if anyone looks to him and believes in him, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. If you eat the bread of life, if you feast on Jesus, there'll be more to say about that in a minute. If you trust him, if you believe in him, you'll live forever. You'll have eternal life. He's better than the manna in the wilderness. And here, when he says that he will give, uh, he will give his life, um, the, the bread, uh, for, the, for the life of the world. He'll give his flesh for the life of the world. He's looking ahead to his crucifixion where he will indeed give his life to save all who will come to him in faith. These promises aren't going to be realized if Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And so when we, when we read what he's saying here, we need to have the cross in view. That's where he's headed. And he looks ahead to it here. The life he will give for the world is his flesh, this crucifixion. Remember that in John 6, it's the time of Passover. So long ago, the Israelites sacrificed lambs and, and spread the blood of the lambs on their doors to spare their firstborn from death. And when God saw that blood, he passed over their homes. Now, Jesus, the Passover lamb of God, is going to die. He will shed his blood so that all who trust him, all who believe in him, they will be saved and spared from God's judgment and condemnation. Like the Israelites back then were saved through the blood of the lamb, we now are saved through the blood of the Passover lamb. But the Jews don't understand Jesus' meaning. In verse 52, they dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus says to them in verses 53 to 58, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Now, think about why that would have been hard for the Jews to hear. Leviticus 19.26 clearly says, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. But here, Jesus is telling them that they don't have life if they refuse to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Seems like a scandalous statement. Well, what does he mean? Well, he's not commanding cannibalism. No, as he's done throughout the chapter, he's calling for his people. He's calling for for people to believe in him, to come to him with repentant faith. And here, he's using a metaphor to do that that recalls the Passover, when the Israelites not only spread the blood of the lamb on their doors, but when they also roasted the lamb and ate it. And, And this metaphor also looks forward to his death on the cross, when his body will be broken and his blood will be shed on behalf of everyone who will trust in him. So it's not literal. It's not literally saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's a metaphor. It's, it's, it's him saying, trust me. Come to me. Trust my death on your behalf. And, and in this, he's calling for the people's, theirs at the time, and yours and my complete buy-in and commitment. He is calling in this for our allegiance. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, in short, I believe Jesus was making the point that he is the giver of supernatural life, the redeemer who had been sent by the living God to impart eternal life to all who put their trust in him. Furthermore, he was calling for a deep commitment. He told his disciples, you have to come into me, be united to me, feast upon me, not just have a casual relationship to me. He was calling his followers to a wholehearted pursuit of union with him, a union without which there is no spiritual life. To put it another way, Jesus declared that religion won't do it, church attendance won't do it, good works in and of themselves won't do it. The only thing that gets us into the kingdom of God by which we participate in the gift of eternal life is union with Christ Jesus. To emphasize this, our Lord said, you have to take all of me as if you were ingesting me. That's how we have to come to Jesus, all in, all in. We see our sin, we see our need, we see that we cannot save ourselves. And with the empty hands of faith, we come to Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life he offers. We we don't bring anything to the table, but we trust him. He's a good giver. He is the bread of life who can satisfy our souls. Now, before we make more application along those lines, let's look at how Jesus' disciples and then the 12 apostles respond to this. And that brings us to the third point. We'll look at verses 60 to 71 here. So John tells us in verse 70 that when many of the, many of the disciples heard it, that is, they heard Jesus' words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, it's important to point out here that disciples includes more than the 12, includes more than the 12 apostles. It's a group of people who are following Jesus, but they're not necessarily genuinely believing in him, as we'll see. And in response to their words, in response to their grumbling about what Jesus has said, Jesus asked him in verses 61 to 62, he says, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
Now, here it's likely that Jesus is thinking of his death on the cross. That's the means by which he would ascend to where he was before. His death on the cross is the means by which he would ascend into heaven. And if that's the case, his point here is that if these disciples are going to grumble about his words, uh, about him saying one must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life, a statement that's metaphorical, they are certainly going to find his death on the cross hard to accept. They're going to find the death of their Messiah a tough pill to swallow if they find his words here offensive. And that's exactly what's coming for Jesus. He will die on the cross for his people. And he adds in verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So flesh there, that could refer to Jesus, or it could refer to our human nature. If it refers to Jesus, Jesus is not saying that his flesh is unimportant. Rather, he's emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit in giving life. If it refers to our human nature, Jesus is saying that we can't save ourselves. The flesh is no help at all. The Holy Spirit must make us come alive. And either way, recognizing that it is the Spirit who gives life, Jesus emphasizes that the words he's spoken to these folks are spirit and life. That is, in the words of D.A. Carson, they are the product of the, of the life-giving spirit and rightly understood and absorbed generate life. He goes on, if the words of Jesus in this discourse are rightly grasped, then instead of rejecting Jesus, people will see him as the bread from heaven, the one who gives his flesh for the life of the world, the one who alone provides eternal life, and they will receive him and believe in him, taste eternal life even now, and enjoy the promise that he will raise them up on the last day. But as Jesus makes clear in verses 64 to 65, there are some of the disciples, some of those people who are following him, who don't believe. And of course, he's right. John says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They weren't following Jesus out of genuine faith. So when Jesus says something that they don't understand, when Jesus says something that they find bothersome, they turn away. But notice how Peter responds. This is verses 67 to 71. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles, with the exception of Judas, express genuine faith. They trust that Jesus has the words of eternal life. They believe and know that Jesus is the Holy One of God, and so they don't turn away from him like the others do. And so the question for each one of us this morning, and this is what I want to end with today, the question for each one of us is this, how are you going to respond to Jesus? If you're not a Christian, come to him. 
He satisfied the physical hunger of the crowd in John 6, 1 to 15. And he, the bread of life, will satisfy the spiritual hunger of everyone who comes to him without distinction. So my invitation to you this morning, Jesus' invitation is go all in. Don't be like those disciples who hear Jesus' words and walk away. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from looking to things outside of Jesus to satisfy you. Turn away from your efforts to save yourself through your own works. And trust Jesus to save you. Come to him as the bread of life. Believe he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead and commit to follow him with all of your heart. He will save you. He is willing and he is able to save you here and now on the spot. He'll give you eternal life. And if you're a Christian, I think two things. One, we should praise God for what he has done for us through Christ. He sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place, to take the punishment for our sins. And on the third day, he raised him from the dead. And when we were dead in our sins, he drew us in. He gave us faith in Jesus so that we willingly came to him and believed and received eternal life. And Jesus, the promise that he gives is that he will not, he will never cast us out. He won't lose us. No, we have a seat at the table and we will be raised up on the last day and we will dwell with God and with everyone who has trusted in Jesus. So let's praise him for what he's done. And then two, with assurance, let's keep on trusting Jesus. Let's keep on believing in him and let's keep on following him even when, like in this passage, he says something that we might find difficult. Jesus might ask hard things of us. Let's cling to him in faith and trust him. In God's strength, let's fight the temptation to use him to simply meet our needs. Let's fight the temptation to find our satisfaction in things other than Jesus. Everything else is going to come up short, but Jesus, the bread of life, never will. He's never going to let us down. And for all of us, whether it's for the very first time in your life or whether it's for the thousandth time, hear and respond to this invitation from Isaiah 55, 1-2. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God wants the very best for us, and he offers it to us in Jesus. So all of us, myself included, we need to keep on coming to the feast. We need to keep on believing in Jesus. He offers himself to us for free, and he is the bread that can truly satisfy we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, and um, it's, just, it's just wild to me. Last time we took the Lord's Supper together, we were in John 2 with Jesus at the wedding where he turned the water into wine. And now we're celebrating the Lord's Supper again, and we're in John 6. Now, this chapter isn't primarily explaining the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is certainly a wonderful reflection on this chapter. By faith, 
remembering, celebrating, and trusting in what Jesus has done, we will, in a minute, eat of the bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us. We will drink of the cup, which symbolizes Jesus' death for us. We will feast. We will feast and look forward in faith uh, to, to what's to come for us when we will dwell with Jesus forever in his kingdom and we will feast recognizing what we have now, that Jesus is our great God and Savior who died and rose in our behalf. So if you're not a Christian, I would ask you to hold off on participating in the Lord's Supper today. Instead, let me encourage you to do two things. Uh, one, in a minute we're going to have a time of reflection. Take that time to pray and ask God to show you Christ and to give you faith to believe in him. And, and two, after the service is over, come and talk to me. I would love to talk with you more and uh, chat with you about what it means to trust Jesus and follow him. And if you are a baptized believer in Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation, we welcome you to participate in the table today in this great grace that we have from the Lord. But before we do that, we're going to pray, and then we'll have a few minutes of uh, quiet reflection um, during that time. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, you are so good and kind to us. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus, who came and accomplished your purpose, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, and he rose from the dead three days later, all on behalf of those who would trust in him for salvation, for those who would come to him, see that he is the bread of life, and taste and see uh, that he is good, that he can satisfy us, that he alone can satisfy us. So thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, I pray that for anyone here who is not a Christian, that you would give them faith to believe this good news, that Jesus is the bread of life who can satisfy their souls. And Lord, for those of us who are trusting Jesus, help us to keep on believing. Help us to see in John 6 today our Savior with fresh eyes. Lord, help us to keep on feasting on him, to keep on trusting him, to keep on coming to him and forsaking all competitors in our hearts. Lord, we need you for that. And uh, we ask you these things confidently in Jesus' name. Amen.